What do you do exactly? It's a question I get often, especially from people not in the media and entertainment industry. Hello everyone, I'm Jamie Maglietta. I'm a freelance producer, production manager, consultant, unscripted long-form line producer, and I guess now a podcast host. Um, you know, when people ask, what do you do exactly? It's always been hard to relate to what they may know. Um, however, during grad school, I started to realize my role in the media is more relatable than I originally thought. And the skills I've gained are more transferable to a variety of jobs. So this past year, I found myself relating to more people about what I do and also asking more questions to see what I could do outside the newsroom. And now I'm using this podcast and YouTube channel to bring similar conversations to you. My hope is that if you are looking for inspiration or a better understanding of the roles in media and entertainment, this will be the place for you. And I'm hoping you'll get some advice along the way. So let's get started. With me now is John Moody. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see him in the corner. If not on this podcast, I'm just going to introduce him a little bit more um, before I bring him in. John and I crossed paths at Fox News Channel. Um, I was there launching Fox News Extra on Fox News Channel and Fox Business Network. I also worked at Fox News Edge while he was an executive vice president. Um, before I left, he then was at News Corp as, a C as the CEO. And I relocated to CNN at that time. John and I crossed paths then and again recently on LinkedIn because he's actually out with two books. And I wanted to interview him to better understand his career and also learn more about his, his novels. So John, let's get started by how do you explain what you do now when you meet people for the first time? Oh, I try not to. I mean, it's, it's just too confusing. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've devoted myself to writing fiction uh, for the last uh, four years. And it's been very rewarding. Um, produced a couple of books and very happy with it and with the response that they've gotten. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, as you as you mentioned, I, I worked at Fox News. Yes. Um, one of the books, so I'll start off. So you have, Of Course They Knew, Of Course They, and the sequel, The World We Wish. You know, originally I thought I would talk about the books after the break, but now I want to talk about them first. You know, writing a book takes a lot of time. And as you said, it took you a few years. You know, when you first decided to write, of course we they knew. What what was it that drove you to write the book? Well, it was it was a novel, uh, mm -hmm. but it was very much fact based because uh, the United States had just begun to understand what the virus called COVID uh, mm -hmm. was doing and how violent a a an, uh, an intruder it was going to be on our lives. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to try to assign the proper blame of, to China for creating and then spreading the virus and for lying about its role in the creation of the virus. And I've always tried to begin these things by, by pointing out that, you know, we were told by the United Nations and by the World Health Organization and by the, the CDC, call it COVID, you know, because we don't want to upset the Chinese. Well, mm -hmm. the Chinese deserve to be upset. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the purpose of the book. I, crea I created four characters and allowed them to interweave their lives uh, all around the theme of the virus. Uh, one Chinese, one American, one Italian, um, and uh, well, actually two Americans, uh, an Italian and a Chinese, and <clears throat> let the reader try to understand from the plot of a fictional book 
what was really going on in the world. Um, the response was pretty good, and I'm 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 proud of it. How much of your information for the book relay, you know, was from facts? Well, I I like to think the vast majority of it was, Jamie. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did do a lot of research. I, I had the luxury of being um, a bit isolated from from the rest of the world. I, I wasn't living in the United States at the time, and so despite that, I was certainly able to get stuff on the internet. I did get some some uh, Chinese uh, blog accounts mm-hmm. of what was actually happening. Every, everybody thinks that there's no way of, of discussing anything properly in China. There is. And a lot of people mm-hmm. are on blogs and a lot of people are on something called WeTalk and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to monitor those. I tried to understand what Chinese people were saying was going on. And then I compared that with the rather feeble response that the Western world was putting up uh, once it understood what was going on. So yes, it's mm-hmm. it's very much fact-based. Um, if I took some liberties, it was to protect characters who I did not want to identify directly by name. And then when you decided to move forward with the sequel, what brought that on? Was it just the energy of writing the first book? Uh, or did you feel like something was left out? A- excellent point. Um, mm-hmm. I in In writing the first book, of course they knew, I realized that much of China's advantage in the technological world is its huge superiority in artificial intelligence. The Chinese have, have, under the direction of the Communist Party, of course, the Chinese have invested tens of billions of dollars in artificial intelligence. Um, I don't know the exact figures for the United States. It'd be hard to to guess at them. But certainly China is outspending us and they are out-researching us on the concept of artificial intelligence, which, whether we like it or not, is going to be the technology that dominates the next couple of decades Mm -hmm. of the world. And so I wanted wanted to bring that topic into uh, close review for readers. Uh, I I actually uh, brought two of my characters from the first book into the second book. Uh, and allowed them to uh, get into the competitive, actually fight to the death. I, I don't think that's an overstatement uh, in artificial intelligence research between the United States and let's say the Western world and China, which stands alone and is certainly uh, preeminent in its position in artificial intelligence. Being a journalist, going into fiction, it must have been really fun. <laughs> when I was working at Fox, a lot of people thought I'd already made that leap. I've always, I've always wanted to write novels. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I had written one before, um, which uh, also tried to mirror another world that I lived in for a while, which mm-hmm. was that of the Soviet Union. And uh, so, when I when I thought I had the time and the the um, go ahead from my editor and from my agent, uh, I really plowed mm-hmm. into it and basically put out uh, two new books in in about two and a half years. It was very, very quick. I mean, we were talking about your first book when you were like, oh, I have a second one coming out. Like, <laughs> right. Right. Well, wow. keep, keep them guessing. That's, that's my I mean, keep them go- But what kind of dedication did it take? You know, some someone listening right now may be thinking, wow, I really want to write a book one day. Mm-hmm. How much dedication did it take for you to essentially crank out two books in such a short amount of time? Yeah, I have been asked that before. Yeah, Um, the 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 answer is not glorious. The answer is not Mm -hmm. sexy. (laughs) And and since this is a podcast, I'll I'll take a little bit of liberty. Mm -hmm. You have to sit your ass down every morning and get working at it. If you if you delay, if you're waiting for inspiration, if you haven't had the right Mm -hmm. voice in your head, 
then you're lost uh, and you're going to waste a day. Uh, you must have a schedule. It, it need not be a certain o'clock to a certain o'clock, but it has to be regular and it has to be the time of day mm-hmm. or night that you are devoting to this effort. Otherwise, it'll never get done. And, you know, as as journalists and even, you know, just being in a newsroom, you kind of get that vibe every day where every second counts, every moment counts. And, you know, as, as a TV producer, I find myself, you know, every moment of my day outside of the newsroom, I'm still like that, where I just want to make the most of every day. And I think that is part of what you're saying. It's like, if you want to write this book, you really need to dedicate it, have a schedule, like you said, and just really get down to it and, and make it work. Um, is there anything in, in your past that kind of helped you have that work ethic? Well, yeah, uh, you, you said it very well, and, and I'll have to repeat you a little bit. Um, yeah. Anyone who works in the news industry, and that's what I call it these days, it's no mm-hmm. longer a business. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyone who works in the news industry for as long as I have understands deadlines. Uh, you can't put the news off. You can't wait until tomorrow. You can't say, yeah, there's been a plane crash, but we'll get around to it in a couple of days. No. Yeah. And so anyone in this industry is already predisposed to meeting deadlines or else they're not working there anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's sort of the same ethic um, that I was using when I was writing these books. And, you know, one of the, um, Anne Bridges, she's an author, she was writing oh, no. about a review about your book. And I, I thought what she wrote was just, it was just so captivating. And she, it was a long one on uh, goodreads.com. But one of the points she said was, you know, for someone of your stature to take um, fiction in order to speak out the truths of the last two years is quite significant. You say that the responses to your book have been positive. Is there any direction or any response to your book that you haven't received that you were hoping for? Yeah, I was hoping Xi Jinping would weigh in and tell me what he thought about it, but he hadn't, he hadn't, I guess Might he hadn't, hasn't, hasn't read it yet. Um, no, I, I mean, clearly it's it's not meant to please a Chinese, a, mm-hmm. a pro-communist Chinese audience. Um, however, I, I do think that <clears throat> certainly the United States and including much of the rest of the Western world has given China way too much leeway in the way we deal with them. One has to understand that that China is the Communist Party. The Communist Party is China. And these are not communists in the sense that Lenin and Marx were communists. Let's share everything. Let's make sure everybody has the same. No, this is this is a little bit more like a mafia family. We tell you what to do. We won't kill you unless you except if, if you do something that we don't like. Well, those are that's that's a pretty tough friendship to try to you know force on people. So that was what I was trying to portray. Um, among the reviews and, and the the comments that I've gotten ha- have been just that that this is a wake up call for anybody that thinks China is our friend. It's not. Well, I appreciate you being a friend and joining us on the podcast. We're going to take a quick break, and after this, you know, I'm hoping we can discuss a little bit more of your career and grab some of your tips for success. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm here with John Moody. 
And if I were to ask him what he does now, he would say author. But before that, he was a correspondent, and he also worked as an executive in the media industry. And John, you know, now that we're back at it, you just spoke about the two books that you recently wrote and gave some advice around being an author. And I really just want to start now at, at where it all began. You know, you were a time correspondent, you worked at UPI, but how did you get over to Fox? Because if you look at your resume on LinkedIn, it goes correspondent to basically like executive. <laughs> what, how did you get over to Fox? Yeah, it was just a lot of bad choices, I guess, Jamie. Um, <laughs> I, I had spent about 20 years as a foreign correspondent, as, as you mentioned, both for mm -hmm. United Press International, which basically no longer exists, uh, and Time Magazine. And I could come close to saying the same about that. Um, and after 20 years, uh, I was uh, given the opportunity to be the New York bureau chief for Time Magazine. And at that time, that was that was a pretty good offer and I couldn't turn it down. Um, and I came back and realized that the organization that I had worked for for 14 years was no longer the organization that I joined. Mm -hmm. And things just were not, not going my way, let's put it that way, probably due to my own lack of uh, ability and, and my own lack of judgment. But um, I, had a, I had a friend uh, who had been a public relations agent for many years, he's fairly well known and famous, Howard Rubenstein, um, one of the one of the biggest PR guys in New York. <clears throat> and I called him, and he said, "Hey, welcome back. You know, I haven't talked to you for a while. Guess what? Rupert Murdoch's thinking of starting a, a news channel. Uh, would you like to be part of that?" And I said, uh, "I'd have to learn a little bit more, but sure, let's let's talk." And he arranged for me to meet this gentleman. Um, who essentially dominated the next 20 years of my life, Roger Ailes. Uh, I, I went into Roger's office and um, uh, he served me some stale bagels and some pretty bad coffee and, uh, and said, I don't think you're right for this. You're a, you're a print guy. And I said, well, it's nice to meet you, Mr. Ailes. Uh, you know, um, it, it just, it, it had disaster written all over it. <laughs> this, it wasn't with the stale bagel. You didn't want to leave at that point. <laughs> the stale bagel was going to be the highlight of my morning, actually. The way things were going. Uh, no, Roger, Roger was, was an absolutely commanding presence, um, a brilliant man. Um, the things that have been assigned to him in later life, I, I knew nothing about. But, um, but Roger could control a conversation, whether it was an interview, as it was with me, um, or giving orders or making decisions as the CEO of, of what was going to then become Fox News. And he, he had obviously looked at my record as a time correspondent. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did was, was work in Moscow. And so, of course, his next question was, are you a commie? And I said, no, Mr. Ailes, if, if you've lived in the Soviet Union, the last thing you're ever going to be is a communist by choice. Uh, and so we started off with that difficult question. Um, after that, I had done some research on Roger Ailes. And I realized that in addition to being a political consultant, as he was for George Bush, George Bush Sr. Uh, and, and Ronald Reagan, uh, that he had also been a Broadway producer, which not many people know. <clears throat> and one of the shows that he produced, and which was quite a hit for a while, was called the Hotel Baltimore. It's hotel without the E, so it was H-O-T-L, Hotel Baltimore. And the plot of the Hotel Baltimore is 
that a sailor and a prostitute are both living in that hotel and they get together and they discuss life. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a much, I, I can't get, I can't do it justice, but uh, <laughs> at one point the prostitute says to the sailor, would you like to dance? And he says, I'm sorry, I don't know how to dance. And she says, nobody does. You just have to pretend that you do. Mm. So with armed with this background, when Roger said for the second time that I was no damn good because I was a print guy, he said, you know, you, you don't know anything about television. And I just looked at him and held him for a beat and mm-hmm. said, nobody does. You just have to pretend you do. And he looked at me. <laughs> he said, have you done research on me? And I said, yes, have you done research on me? And he said, well, yes, but that's dead. I said, well, no, it's not different. Mm-hmm. Answer the question. And with that beginning, we began to forge a mutually beneficial, I, I like to think, mutually beneficial relationship. I knew what he wanted to do, and he knew that I probably had the tools if I pushed myself hard to get it done. Mm-hmm. And when he finally offered me the job, uh, I said, yes, I'd be honored to do it. And he said, all right, we'll get it done. And, and that was the way he thought. I mean, okay, I've made my decision. Now I'm going to grind you into dust unless you perform for me the way I think you should. And he gave me 20 years to prove it. And I, I guess he was okay with it. You know, at the time, it was a, it was a startup. Even when I was there, I felt this entrepreneurial energy at Fox, you know, because at the time we were launching, it was like foxnews.com, the live stream, and there's just a lot of entrepreneurial energy. I mean, when you look back at that time, what was, I mean, what was your, maybe your favorite part of that experience launching Fox News Channel? Yeah. I'll always remember, even before we launched the channel, um, we had put on a, we, we began a Sunday morning show on the Fox broadcast network. And it was called mm-hmm. Fox News Sunday. And it's still in existence. Um, and so my first efforts were devoted to that. And we were going to have trouble because nobody wants to go, you know this better than I, nobody wants to go on a show that nobody's watching. I mean, it's just not worth their time, especially if they're well known. And so we were having trouble getting any politicians to come on the first edition of Fox News Sunday. I had made a contact before with then and now the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And, and so I asked him through his office, through a couple of assistants, you know, would he consider coming on? And Senator Moynihan was a brilliant man, really. Um, he, he's largely credited with being the first one to say uh, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. They're not entitled to their own facts. Hmm. Um, but Senator Moynihan also had a reputation for enjoying a, a, a stiff drink now and then. And so we said to him, you know, would you consider coming in? We'd have to have you there at eight o'clock to do a pre-tape. And he said, well, okay, is there an open bar? And I said, for you? Yes, you bet. I went and bought the <laughs> bottle myself and put it there. <laughs> not that uh, others should be doing that if you're listening. I, I, I do not recommend <laughs> that. And, 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 and if you ever watch them, don't ever do that. Um, and I think the fact that we got him, and he was great. He was absolutely wonderful on the show. Um, and I think that that was one of those moments when I began to think, we can do this. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of convincing. Uh, it's going to be a very uh, tough grind. I had tried 
naturally we all tried to get uh, then President Clinton to come on the show. And I was sent to the White House and uh, sent to the office of George Stephanopoulos, who was then the domestic policy advisor. And he was he was very polite. But he essentially, he said, are you out of your mind? We're not going on a Rupert Murdoch, Roger Ailes channel. And I said, well, you, sorry. I mean, with respect, you don't know what we're going to be. And he, he listened. He softened. Now, we never got President Clinton on per se, um, but at least Mr. Stephanopoulos was good enough to let me speak my piece, make a decision. He decided not to, but that's okay. But I realized if you, if you can make your points lucidly to people, even though they're dead set against you, they may at least consider you better than what they expected. And that's, that's the first step. That, and, and I know you're interested in, in maybe letting your, your viewers and listeners know what you have to do. You have to believe that you can do what you've been asked to do. You know, and you've made so many great points as a producer. I have always made it my mission. It was something I learned at Fox to deliver what's being requested, right? Yeah, I'm here to make your dreams come true. So I'm being tasked with either the anchor's dreams or my executive producer's dreams to, to make them a reality, right? So you need to have that drive, that ambition, that, that creativity. And the points that you're making, you need to also attempt to push the envelope when when needed, right? And in that case, you needed him, you wanted to do what you could, and you tried. Okay, so he didn't come on, but at least you tried. And I remember, you know, through that time at Fox, when, when we were both there toward the end of your time, it did feel like there was this sense, on at least where I was, that everyone was still trying to be as fair and balanced. Remember that was the slogan? Thing, right? Yes. You know, over the years, everyone has grown their own opinions of Fox or CNN and all the networks. And there is this rivalry going on. And we don't need to get into it because it's it's obvious to everyone. But I would think like, you know, after you left, you went over to News Corps and then you came back. And when you came back, you were you also were an opinion writer. Would you mind talking about that as the executive editor? Yeah, uh, sure. News Corps, um, mm -hmm. spelled C-O-R-E at the end was an idea of mine to try to bring together all of the news entities that Rupert Murdoch owned around the world. And you have to remember, aside from Fox and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal, he is a dominant figure in Australia and in the United yes. Kingdom and in Italy. Uh, and so I, my hope was that by, by creating a news service that used the resources of all those worldwide entities, we could be independent of organizations like the Associated Press and Reuters. Uh, it was by bad fortune that around that time, um, News Corporation was getting itself in trouble in the United Kingdom with some uh, phone tapping scandals. Mm -hmm. And so the response to that was to divide the company into two, a Fox company and a News Corp company. Uh, and so with that, it was impossible for me to carry out my mission. And Roger Ailes was very, very gracious in welcoming me back. And he said, um, you know, we want you to uh, be the executive editor here and we want you to write about, you know, what you think, which is a, a great assignment. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did that for a couple of years and um, finally, finally wrote, I, I, I went a bridge too far, perhaps, uh, 
but uh, wrote a piece that, that drew a lot of criticism. And at that point, um, I just I just thought, well, if, if that's the way it's going to be, then then I think my time here is finished. You know, and someone listening, as we talked about the being an author, they may want to be an opinion writer, or become an expert in China. And it's it's a delicate, you know, you're trying anything with China, you're going to have to be delicate. But as an opinion writer, it is hard to sometimes find your own voice. How did you find your voice? That's a great question, Jamie. I I I, th- I think to give you the 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 most direct answer, and then I'll expound a little bit, is you have to know who you are. And having had about 30, at that time, 38 years of experience in, in, in the news business, uh, I, I guess I thought that I had achieved that. And so my voice was, was exactly the same voice that I used when I was talking to somebody at the gym or when I was meeting somebody for a drink. Um, I, I tried not to overplay it, but um, I was not shy about expressing my, my feelings and my thoughts on things. I found several topics that I wrote about repeatedly in that time uh, and have always felt that I, if not became the leading expert, that I at least was offering facts that were not out there for most people to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's the delicate balance, too. Trying to figure out how to have your voice within the facts, but also, you know, try not to make everyone, you're going to make people unhappy, no matter what. You can't always make everyone happy, but you do want to try to find your audience, right, with your voice and connect to them and deliver what you're, what they're hoping for. And I think that's what opinion writers are always striving for. Now, someone, someone watching this may think, you know, your books that you just wrote are kind of like versions of an opinion piece. What, what are your thoughts on that? Would you agree? I, I, I can't disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's the interpretation that people have, then then all they have to do is look at the name of the author. Uh, um, sure. I, I was trying to make points in the novels, again, based on facts uh, that I thought might be very contentious if I presented it as nonfiction. Uh, but I presented it under a different label. And uh, as I am happy to say, it, it got a fairly good review from it, uh, a fairly good reception from people. Um, I, I'll just I'll just mention one person who I think is the epitome of a knowledgeable opinion writer, and that's David Brooks of the New York Times. Hmm. He, he he very seldom strays from the truth, um, by which I mean his opinion overtakes the facts. Um, and almost every topic that he takes on is done with intelligence, with dignity. And with depth, and and I really respect his writing. You know, and I, I think this has been a very strong conversation for our audience. You know, before we go, I just wanted to get you know maybe your tips, tips for people that are starting out in the business or looking to be like you one day, John, or trying to you know add to their resume uh, what people are looking for when they're hiring. You know, what are your thoughts or tips for people when they ask? your thoughts on entering this industry? Yeah, well, I, I certainly wouldn't want them to follow my example. That's a, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. When I was at Fox and someone would come in uh, for a job interview, mm-hmm. I would ask them as a point of, of reference, I would say, why do you want to get in to this industry? And again, I don't call it a business anymore because it's more, it's like making widgets. Uh, the, the, news, the news factory 
has really become a place unrecognizable to anybody who started when I did. <clears throat> but I would say, why do you want to get into this? And if their answer was, I want to make the world a better place, or I want to help people, or I want to do good, I always, I had I'd figured it out by then, I would point out my window and I'd say, right there across the street is the Salvation Army, go join them. Hmm. You're not here to do that. You're not here to make the world a better place. You're not here to help people. You're here to report in an intelligent, concise, and truthful manner what you yourself have seen or what you have learned from verifiable, reliable witnesses that you think are credible. If you can't do that, we don't want you. And naturally, you know, it's, you can't, you can't stand there like a machine and just spurt out facts that you've heard or this, that. Obviously, human contact is, is a huge part of television news. But I do think that as an industry, we've allowed human contact, and, and no human is perfect, and so therefore imperfect contact between a journalist and his or her audience to dominate the presentation of actual fact. And I think that's a big black mark against the news industry, and I hope that it can be corrected sometime in the future. So if someone's starting out and they're looking for, you know, tips or looking for some some advice, besides that, is there do you feel that coming from local or going into print is is something that you you think helps them along the way? I it can't hurt. Uh mm-hmm. I but I, I think that the the traditional route, yes, you know, you started a local TV station, you you report on a traffic accident at Fifth and Vine or something like you know, and, mm-hmm. and then learn how to do bigger, more national or international uh, mm-hmm. stories. It, yes, but it takes too long. Most local news, television news people get cozy. They, they get co-opted into their job where, wherever it happens to be. I come from the, the city of Pittsburgh, and I know that, that local journalists there, lo- local TV people there, you know, there, there are some that have been there for 20 and 30 years, and, and you just get too comfortable. Um, if your goal is, and, and, and the, the, rev, the obverse of that is if you go into a local TV station and make it clear from the beginning that you want to be on CNN or Fox news or CBS in five years, everybody's going to hate you. You're not going to be popular and you probably won't get any good story chances. So that path I think has, has changed. I, I think that actually what you're doing right now, podcasts, um, are, a new, well, a relatively new and untested uh, experience for people. Uh, so, you know, people who listen or, or watch podcasts are getting a different sort of, of, of explanation of what they're viewing or hearing. And I think that it's very, it has a lot of potential uh, and it doesn't require years of drudgery uh, you know, uh, reporting on cats who are caught up in trees. I'm very thankful I haven't had to write about the cats climbing up trees. They scratch. But I have had my fair share of fluff. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> but, you know, you have a good point with the podcasting and now with the YouTube channels. There's a lot more innovation that is available to people entering this media and entertainment space where you don't 
necessarily have to go the traditional routes that we might have been taught when we were younger. You know, I remember in school, it was reporter, writer, producer. That's it. Now you can be a content producer, a podcaster. There's just so much, you know, and I think that it takes conversations like we're having for people to really get the advice and the guidance that they need to try to navigate. So I really do appreciate your time. Is there any, you know, final thoughts that you have? Communication and and my whole career has been news communication is a wonderful way to make a living and it's a wonderful way to live your life. Don't get caught up uh, in thinking that it's all about you. One, one time Roger Ailes called me into his office and he said something, you know, that last story was really stupid. Why do we have that on? And I said, well, I, I liked it. And he tapped the television screen in his office and he said, Moody, this business isn't about you. It's about the person on the other side of that glass. And you know, short of actually hitting me with his hand, that, that was about as powerful a statement as, as I'd heard. And it, it, remind, it, it, it gave me guidance. Uh, it's not about you. It's about the audience. And mm-hmm. never forget that. And you'll probably do better. Yeah. Well, thank you for everything. I really do appreciate this conversation. And I wish you all the best with the books. Um, make sure you guys look them up. I'm just going to say them one more time. The two books that are out right now, we have Of Course They Knew, Of Course They, and The World We Wish. Thanks again, John. Thanks, Jamie.